Welcome to The Difference Engine, the show for founders, funders, and the category curious. Don't confuse size, don't confuse valuation with category leadership. I'm not the only person frustrated by this. You disagree with my analysis. I do. You either acquire or you are acquired. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And it's proof that you're winning the argument. We all know history is written by the winners. Hello. Hey, what to hear what's coming up today? Hit me. Well, we'll be revealing the UK's quantum fraud, how you can profit from the death of SAS, and how long Big Tech's people shakeout will rumble on for. We'll also be sharing the scoops from the Sifted conference. But first, let's find out who won Big Tech's arm wrestling contest again. The US has strong-armed European tech again. Sorry for the atrocious pun. Arm has had a successful IPO, $50 billion valuation. What's wrong with that? Very successful, right? Who'd have thought that the US would swoop in and nick another UK category leader and claim it as its own? And this is why, really, uh, it's very hard to build categories in Europe, because just when they're getting to, like, ripe teenagerdom, Big Daddy swoops in from the States and floats it over there, and all the goodness tends to leave the building. The story of Arm is, is a pretty interesting one. And, you know, in many ways, a tribute to some um, very savvy investment and, and management out of the UK. I mean, everybody wibbles on about Google and Facebook and all the other so-called category leaders. But when you've got one company that essentially designs the chips that makes all mobility happen worldwide, then that, that's really something. And the fact that came out of a sleepy market town in England is even more remarkable. Chipless fab designs, you know, it's the category anybody would want to be in. Should we talk about why that's such a great category? I mean, it's the sort of category any nation would love. Look at the suitors here. We've got the Japanese in with SoftBank. Their money comes from Saudi Arabia. You've got investors in the States in the flotation from Google through to Meta, etc. Everybody wants a piece of this. Now, that's what you call a ginormous category, right? You know, it's got all the nice pieces. It's It's deep tech. It really took a differentiated point of view to its category and then innovated further and started talking about fabulous, I don't even need to make the chips. Now, that's a category. What amuses me, having been around this business for decades, is that Arm came out of an early attempt to become a global leader in small footprint computing at the time. I'm hesitating to use the word PC here, but it was the PC that killed off the original Acorn computer. But Chris Curry and Herman Hauser weren't gonna weren't gonna let it go. You know, essentially we span out an incredibly successful business from a business that was doomed to fail because we didn't get the global standard. IBM developed that. But they pivoted nicely. They found another niche. They got there in the end. And again, let's take our hats off here. You know, a lot of value created, five billion created in a day when the share price pops like that. That's a, a hell of a result for anybody internationally. Hats off to the guys from the UK originally, but boo, having to go to the States to make it big. Absolutely terrible. And the truth is out, right? Like, NYC is the place to float for tech. And that sends an awful message to all of the entrepreneurs here in Europe that are trying to build categories, because you can only grow them so big, and then you need that successful IPO. Shame on us. Shame on the government for making it so hard for these companies to float over here. And and I think you're quite strong on this too. Shame on the city. And what do you think the London Stock Exchange is doing? Oh, it's having a review. Well, that's going to that's gonna work. Yeah, don't hold your breath on that one. And as anybody knows, uh, us long-suffering shareholders in Dart Trace, another impugned company, the city just does not get tech. 
They don't like it. They don't want it. And of course, if you're building a category, where are you going to float? You're going to float where people like you, where the massive pools of capital can be accrued, where you can do your roadshow face-to-face in one town and just float successfully and pop 20% on a day. What's not to like? Yeah, we've talked before about the inability to create major category leaders out of Europe. SAP did it with, with ERP. And, you know, we've got now Arm with fabulous chip design, except, you know, that's two and we've now thrown one away. Well, here we sit in London. Let's let's look at London as, as a leader in developing category leaders. And we have some inherent problems, which we'll no doubt uh, come revisit as a topic. I was at COGEX, where Reid Hoffman, he's the, the founder of LinkedIn, famously sold to Microsoft. What does Reid have to say when asked directly by a former BBC journalist what we can do in London to rival Silicon Valley? Well, he says, I think Silicon Valley is a good place. No shizzle. And uh, he then follows up by saying, that's not anti-London. You need to chart your network. It's a little easier to do that in Silicon Valley than London. So I think what he's saying there, if you you decode that, is no, it's very hard to do this in London. And no, the network doesn't exist just yet. And yes, we're very happy to keep our advantages. And I think until we really figure out how to address some of these problems, we're perennially going to lose these guys, the category leaders of Europe, to the US. But for now, it's just a shame what's happened to Arm. At the same time, hats off to them. Hats off to Arm. You know what? This really grinds my gears. So, Jonathan, what's grinding your gears this time? Well, it's this thing we seem to do incredibly well in this country, which is to put people who are fundamentally ill-prepared for jobs into positions of enormous strategic importance. Let's be fair, that doesn't always happen. Oh, yeah, that's true. Let's, let's, Let's have a little chat about Dave Smith, the former Rolls Royce technology director appointed as the country's national technology advisor, you know, replacing the venerable Sir Patrick Valance. You know, Dave's the real deal for this job. He's got a PhD in physics. He's worked leading Ricardo in Europe. You know, it looks like this guy has got the hands-on experience to do the job that government wants, which is, you know, to integrate academic and industry expertise with what government wants to do for a country as a whole and that should give us a shot at developing some new tech categories to lead in but he sounds all wrong he didn't go to oxbridge he didn't didn't study ppe i presume he's not got the sharpest of gray suits what's going wrong here i mean why are we why are we getting this right now your point about the oxbridge effect remember back in february the, the then uk department of business energy industrial strategy base as it was known said it was going to look to appoint somebody to lead the government's quantum computing strategy quantum computing now that sounds like an important category so i'm, I'm sure they've, they've really gone out and uh, got an expert right that that's absolutely important i mean let's not beat about the bush quantum is a major paradigm shift you know we've talked about that this is something which will dictate the future of information processing in the future. Well, absolutely. It destroys cryptography in a heartbeat, and it's going to be a bigger wave even than generative AI. So, yes, yes, yes. Damn right. You know, so 
Therefore, we think that is a paradigm that's got the potential to create a series of tech categories in the UK. So now you're going to tell me Batman's in charge. <laughs> it's worse than that. You know, we, we sort of made a start as, as a country back in 2014, where we put in a, a program to bring together academia, industry and government, put in what, 1.4 billion, I, I think, to set up a whole load of centres around the, around the country. And they've been grinding away. So the government thinks now's the time to develop a national quantum strategy that sets out how government's going to sort this whole thing out and drive us forward. So, you know, in, in 10 years, it, it's all got a bit real. Our future as a country is at stake. We've got to get quantum right, yeah? So who do you think the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology, as it's now called, have appointed to this fundamentally vital I don't know. I, I'm, to I'm torn between two ideally qualified candidates, Liz Truss and Daniel Craig. One of those? I mean, Daniel knows about quantum because he did well, quantum solace. So I've, I've, got, I've got to say, both of them have spent their life working for the public sector, haven't they? So guess what? The new leader for this vital national role is a career civil servant and a junior one at that. Ten years since graduating. When the initiative started... They were still at college. He was still at uni. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we've got to respect youth. Maybe he's a fast learner. Yeah, but what do you reckon? Another Oxbridge Arts degree, do you think? You tell me. Yes. Oh, okay. This is a classic committee seat-warming, essay-writing, policy-wonk profile. No hands-on experience in the technology business. No background in computing or science. No hands-on experience in investment. Not bloodied by entrepreneurship or leading large organizations. Absolutely no peer-to-peer -peer clout and absolutely no skin in the game. I mean, I, I, I'm not that amazed. Little side story from one of our clients, we had calls to speak to the uh, civil servants, literally the civil servants writing the online safety bill. And uh, the experience level, shall we just say, was low. And you probably saw that that got withdrawn recently, the reason for it being. The reason for this important bill with hundreds of amendments being withdrawn was the technology doesn't exist. I kid you not. That got pulled because somebody realized you can't scan everybody's messages and have secure encrypted communication. So just demonstrates, I think, a lack of understanding and grasp of technology, which is really hurting us. And another evidence, uh, piece of evidence for that is the recently announced AI Safety Summit, which is happening in November. And that just strikes me as, you know, shutting a stable door uh, way after the horses disappeared over the horizon and, and maybe even the dust has settled from the horses' hooves as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the rest of the world is pouring money into quantum and it looks like we're preparing to, to crush it with a dead hand of disinterest and careerism. This is definitely not Dave Smith, who, who is clearly the right appointment to do it. You know, what on earth are we doing? This is really grinding your gears, I can tell. So um, how would you sum up your feelings on this, Jonathan? No solace in this quantum. You've got to learn to earn. If SaaS is dead, how do you profit? As tough economic times hit, one thing is for sure, new categories will be created. It's happened in every tech cycle, but what will it be this time? Well, let's think back to SaaS. So I was just at the SASTRA event uh, here in London, Tobacco Dock, and there was a lot of negativity at that event, I have to say. It seems like this is a, if you want to call it an Uber category, software as a service, that is somehow, uh, it's somehow peaked. 
Uh, and now the good times are gone. And some of the conversations I heard there were, if you're not growing at 65%, please don't come to us as a VC. You see the VCs running for the hills. It's obviously not the cool thing. You're dead right. You know, there's, there's this massive move from the sort of strategic grow at all costs, grab that land to a, you know, what's the euphemism at the moment? Radical efficiency in operations. You know, we know what that means. That means firing people. And we've seen SaaS firms from, you know, Atlassian to Zendesk. And, oh, and of course, Salesforce, the, the big daddy, uh, cutting back. Um, and, you know, it is really quite painful because, because SaaS it's big enough to have created its own ecosystem. So you've got a, got a whole ecosystem of SaaS companies selling to other SaaS companies. You know that something's got too big, and this happened back in the dot-com, dot-bomb era, when your taxi driver is giving you share tips. That's supposed to be the rule of like when it's absolutely the time to bail out. And with SaaS, what I noticed at SaaStra were there were three, four, maybe five companies all in the same space of something that I would loosely describe as figuring out which of your subscriptions you want to lose. So these are companies that are saying, we will go in, look at all the SaaS products you've got, all the SaaS sprawl, as they call it, that you've got because your line of business has got credit cards and, and got mini apps, mini SaaS apps for this and mini SaaS apps for that. And these companies are coming in at the end of a cycle, arguably, and saying, we will uh, optimize your spend, meaning cut some of their own SaaS brothers and sisters out of the equation and that to me is sort of a taxi driver moment yeah but it's, it's a category within a category it's a sort of classic uh, end of cycle uh, dynamic but what i like about it and you know let's call it SaaS management um as a broad as a broad category it, you know it does meet that uh, classic um, category requirement there's a clear customer requirement people need to get a grip on their SaaS estates. So even if these guys are vampires, in, you, in your view, feeding off the success of the previous SaaS category, that's all good because the genuine need is to cut costs at this time in the cycle and arguably there's just too many SaaS licenses knocking about. Oh, that, damn right there is. And, you know, I think there is that whiff of creative destruction appearing here. That, there was an interesting report that came out quite recently from Zylo or Zylos. They claimed that the average organization had 291 SaaS applications in its portfolio. But the interesting thing was that was down from 323 in 2022. And you know, that's the first decline in SaaS portfolio size and spending since you know, I would guess, you know, the mid-teens, uh, 2015, 2016. Well, let me take a little sidebar here. One of the companies that you're talking about in SaaS management firms, Aptia, I noticed recently, which had already um, changed hands for a couple of billion. Uh, and we, you know, full declaration here, we worked a little bit uh, on their early category, which was TBM, TBM technology business management. Uh, and this was the idea that you could take all the costs of all the hardware, standardized servers you had, all of the cloud spending you're doing, even the professional services folks from Accenture, et cetera, who are helping with you, put it into a big old, you know, version of a spreadsheet, you know, a bit smaller than a spreadsheet, obviously, and cut costs and, and give management for the first time an overview on what their IT spend was. Very, very clever use of category. They created the TBM Council. They had all sorts of big names signing up for it. These guys killed it. And the uh, result uh, I see uh, in, the, in the last couple of weeks was a four, north of 4 billion exit very nice for those guys who created the category that is a whole lot 
of category value being created right there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great. I mean, I think there is there is a massive opportunity here in this, this SaaS management space. You know, we're starting to see emerging categories such as spend management, management operations, and so on. They're just providing tools. But what I think is really interesting is that it's becoming an ever more crowded market. And if you look at the players, you look at them, they're describing themselves in the same way. They're just competing on features. Oh, oh, and the classic claiming their Gartner rating is better than their competitors. There's no different though. It's like the um, the eight year olds playing football, where the, the, everybody runs to where the ball is. Yeah. Nobody's in any space. It's exactly what it is, and in in a way, it's very predictable for us. Looking outside the market is quite tragic. You know, different is the absolute currency of category. And if you're the same as everybody else, you are asking to be commoditized. You look like the same bag of salt on the shelf of the grocery store. Yeah, and, and you know that's, I think, why we're particularly excited about this area because I think there's a huge categorization opportunity waiting for those that just want to grasp it. You know, it's important for organic growth, but, you know, right now it's the sort of thing that could release the massive pile of private equity money that's still waiting to be spent on on potential winners in, in the SaaS space. If, for instance, as we talked about with the SaaS market, that's a market that looks like it's sunsetting somewhat or, 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 or reconciling whatever, then you don't want to be in that category. You want to be in a different category. And so that's something we've helped quite a number of Clients, I think, between our European and Israeli uh, categorical clients, uh, it's a quarter of a billion raised. And yeah, immediately post categorization. I mean, that's the important point. They weren't seeing that sort of money when they were trading with their existing approach to market. They categorize, everybody gets it, the money moves in. It is the perfect time to take the lead, the lead in, in SaaS management. And of course, we'd love to help, wouldn't we, Paul? Of course, we would. Yeah. And, and tech downturns really are where the value is created. It takes a while to build a category. Let's remember that. We reckon, you know, three years to get established and maybe three more to dominate. So quite a while. Our friends at Aptia, we're at it for at least a decade. It takes a while to get there, but the rewards are clear. So if you are thinking that you're stuck in the wrong category, it's really the time to have a think about how you move to that new one. So, Paul, we've had a sort of interesting couple of weeks here. We've actually been out and about. Yeah, we've not been working from home. We've been getting on actual public transport and going to see specifically a couple of tech events. So most recently, and uh, this is where I bumped into the, the chats from our wonderful podcast, Fascinate Guys, I was at the Sifted Summit. How was that? Well, attendance was down, but there were some very interesting Johnny-come-lately corporates there. Well, you mean like big banks, integrators? Morgan Stanley, Accenture, yes. Dumpite vendors? Yes, and I think one of the issues could be tech tourists. What's a tech tourist? Tech tourists seem to be a, seems to me to be a fairly recent phenomenon, where people who have had absolutely no uh, connection with the tech industry over the decade, the decades it's been around, have suddenly appeared and sort of pretend to be part of it and pretend to be important uh, and or influential in it. So, uh, sifted summit. We were confronted, uh, uh, and it was somewhat bloated, I would say, in fairness, by tech tourists. And we love, we love Sifted, but I just don't think it's course corrected for the tech downturn. There's sort of some good news is that, is that the, the tech tourists appear to be declining. They do, thank these, God. Cheery by, you know, a lot of them thought, yeah, VC, what does that mean? Checks. It's all about checks. Uh, and then the money, obviously, has dried up a little bit. They forgot it's also about hard work, right? Creating categories is blooming hard. And a guy who's created um, 
an amazing category is John Collison. I believe he's still Europe's most eligible bachelor. And he is the founder of Stripe, which is one of the still, I believe, one of the few standing European unicorns at this point. And, and he took it further than tourists. And I loved his quote. He said, the grifters have left the building. The grifters have left the building. And I think, personally, that's a good thing. Okay, so, so what would you like to see if we're, you know, got our trainers on and we're wandering, wandering around London in a year's time, going to the various shows we think are actually important to the tech business? I think focus, maybe a two-day summit is a little bit too much sifted. Focus it down, focus it on things that are going to be useful. Ideally, focus it on things that will help you build a category and just make it great because it's different to all of the other hectoring party political conferences of which there are too many. Look, there's Captain Hindsight. In hindsight, it should have been obvious that it'd be Apple that would move quickest to get a grip on the embedded finance category and really start to threaten big finance. And, you know, and guess what? It's already leading the category with the reach and resources to dominate it. Certainly, I've just come back from the States. Everything I bought was on Apple Pay. Uh, and we know that they've got big plans to, to make it even easier to roll out that technology. Yeah, yeah and there's some quick lessons here in, in terms of you know, getting in and dominating a category. I mean, they've built in-house, they've co-created, they've outsourced. So they've spread themselves across the market very, very quickly. And the reality is that Apple device is in virtually everybody's hands. And what's nice is, you know, there are subcategories in here. So there's obviously the sort of personal payment, retail payments piece, which we've all been using for some time. There's also the merchant payment piece where they're now using Apple devices instead of a whole category of card readers that that were out there. You know, as a merchant, you can use your Apple phone to be, if you like, the electronic till. 1.5 billion iPhone users and over 2 billion active devices. That's a very, very big audience. And, and that's stealthy, right? This is the other thing you notice with Apple is it's extremely stealthy. It's there before you know it. You are using it, not even realizing you've got the capability. And because they've already got massive market share, as you said, and the way that they roll these things out is it's just appears on your phone. Google does the same trick a lot with its G Suite, where you find brilliant new pieces of functionality just rolling out. Let's not forget, though, that these guys have got massive brands, right? This is where brand and category can work uh, harmoniously. Now, they have misstepped a little bit. They, they, they didn't go brilliantly with Goldman Sachs. Everybody's running for cover on this one because one of the things with finance, obviously, is it's all very well taking payments. That's where the, you know, a lot of the interest, a lot of these fintechs uh, that are hurting so badly at the moment rose. It gets a lot trickier when you're taking people's money, giving them a guaranteed interest savings rate, and that's uh, you know sort of why here in the UK the Bank of England is quite or was until recently very stingy about giving out banking licenses. You know, nod to all of those new banks that are trying to get the neo banks that are still struggling with that. But it is tricky when you are taking people's money and you are trying to give them a return, and you're you know a proper bank as opposed to a payments system. Yeah, but you know, Apple did get into bed with the great vampire squid on this. Now, you know, on the plus side, they got. $10 billion worth of deposits in four months. Now, it's taken other neobanks banks a minimum of six or seven years to do that. So hats off them to do it. But if you're trying to roll out a category quickly, you know, 
be careful who you partner with because some, sometimes your desire to do things quickly may bite you later. Let's yeah. look at it the other way around, though. So the Goldman brand is, you know, is, is, it has certain attributes, et cetera, et cetera. Did they go into this JV with Apple to sort of Apple wash their products for retailers? Arguable, yeah. But also it used Apple to learn an awful lot about a category that it and its competitors are not in a good position to enter. Is the moral to the story that if you're a storied, massive monolith, uh, you know, vampire squid, as, as some people very unkindly call Goldman, that you know, you can get into uh, new categories of service, which they certainly weren't in the retail savings business, uh, or, or not to any great degree, before they they got together with Apple and jointly went for this new offer. If I was in Goldman Sachs, I'd be saying I'd be saying great move. The, the issue, though, is, is that you know, regulated financial service providers are really to a penny. Companies with Apple's technology and reach aren't. So the reality is that to succeed in embedded finance, Goldman needs Apple a lot more than Apple needs Goldman. So what's changed from a category perspective here? Has the category of banking been changed by these two guys getting together? Yes, I think it has. Um, it is proven that embedded finance is a winner. And it's what people want. Which leaves the door open for other players to come and dominate this new category called embedded finance. I'm thinking of Stripe and other people like that. So there's still everything to play for. And sometimes when you go out and you try and change the world, it doesn't work out quite as expected, even though the category itself has been proven. And they will be working or should be working very hard on creating subcategories in the category of embedded finance that Apple almost at a stroke has proven. What does the future hold? Let's look into our crystal ball. Right then, Jonathan, what do you see in your crystal ball today? Well, I think, as we've seen before in many other cycles, is that big tech's people shakeout will continue. I have to say I concur. I was at the launch, very brave launch, of a new financial services fintech company earlier this week. Uh, speaking to a gentleman who'd mentioned his company was at 350 people until two weeks ago, and uh, then it's 150 light. This shakeout is ongoing and it's concerning, but maybe not unexpected. No, it isn't. The reality is that you know, in the boom times, the big tech firms in particular became just too big and frankly too fat and constantly confuse filling seats with attracting talent. I mean, there was all sorts of shenanigans going on. There were people just hiring uh, to acquihire, as they say, just to, to take teams of engineers off of other people to stop people getting the talent. I mean, you know, where's the where's the creativity in that? I, I've got an engineer, so you can't create a great product. I mean, it's horrible behavior. So yeah, it's all sorts of nastiness going on. And the shakeout maybe not be may maybe not be the worst thing in the world because you know the the rumor is that that B players become C players over time and B players never hire A players. That's true. I mean, people are probably bored with me saying is is that one of the golden rules of recruitment in tech as in anywhere else is hire slow and fire fast. So you, you think this is going on? Do we, could we maybe say when it might turn around, will, will AI roles pick it up? Maybe not so much. They don't need so many people. Mr. Musk has proved that. Yeah, I still think there's going to be shedding through the end of this year. But I think we are already starting to see um, confidence returning, um, both 
in the tech industry, but also I think in the general economy, things are starting to stabilize. And we're seeing tech centers like London, uh, latest surveys are showing that um, business leaders are becoming much more confident about how things are going to pan out over the next 18 months. So in summary, a little bit more pain to go, uh, something we can see very, very clearly, and possibly the vague glimmers of a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. It's a really interesting time. And, and you know, as, as both Paul and I both experienced, downsizing, i.e. getting rid of people, is a really blunt instrument, particularly when it has to be done at speed. And just as you might find that, you know, really good companies are getting rid of their C-grade players that they hired just to fill the seats in the boom times, uh, you often find that some very poor companies are getting rid of some really good people. And it's those people you should be looking to hire. Hope this is helping you design your category. For more information, go to becategorical.com where you'll find downloadable resources. Thanks for listening and keep different. <laughs>